0: This episode discusses mental health, self-harm, and suicide. If you or someone you know needs to talk to a counselor, please call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you would like to speak to a counselor online, please visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. It was August 13th, 1989. My girlfriend who's now my wife we were there with him and we were playing video games as a matter of fact basketball analyst
1: bobby jared remembers the last time he saw his friend ricky berry small forward for
0: the sacramento kings um uh, late summer night in august uh, having a good time they were at ricky's house
1: the one he and his wife had just moved into in carmichael about 15 miles from downtown sacramento ricky was weeks away from his 25th birthday Born in Lansing, Michigan, Ricky and his family moved to Sacramento when he was a toddler after his dad got a gig coaching basketball nearby. He seemed like the most normal person. Ricky loved racing cars and even moonlighted at car dealerships. That evening, they were playing video games, eating pizza, relaxing by the pool, basically enjoying the off-season after Ricky's first year in the NBA.
0: Ricky was uh, ahead of his time in the sense that he probably would be what we call today a, a stretch four. Uh, he could put the ball on the floor. Uh, he could shoot it from deep. Um, and so that made him very dangerous. Six, eight, 205
1: pounds. Barry combined the quickness of a guard with the height of a big forward, able to shoot over or dunk on anyone who dared defend him out on the wing. His season started slow, but he hit double digits in nine of the last 10 games, including a career-high 34
0: points. There was a game against the Warriors. He may have had six or seven three-point shots uh, made in a game. For 12, apparently, is the number on Ricky Barry. He was super skinny when he came in as a rookie. And then I remember Ricky um, going off in, the, in that summer league, you know, kind of showing off his new physique. And everybody thinking, man, this guy and his next season, look out. Reggie Miller with a handle. That's how his teammate,
1: now TNT analyst, Kenny the Jet Smith, described Ricky's game. An all-star career wasn't unimaginable given Barry's rookie season.
0: Uh, I go to sleep and I'm awakened early the next morning by my dad. I'm living at home at that time. Uh, my dad comes in the room and he's, he wakes me up and he's like, Hey, you know, like what's going on? And I'm like, what do you mean? What's going on? He's like, Ricky Barry's dead. And I, the only thing, the first thing that came into my mind, well, this had to be a car crash, you know, like, uh, he was speeding and driving recklessly or Something like that. Whatever had happened, everyone felt like it must
1: have been an accident, some gigantic cosmic mistake.
0: My dad said, no, you know, they, they think that he took his own life. And I just could not believe it.
1: He'd just seen his friend the night before. He didn't seem like the kind of person who was depressed or angry or as the hurtful lingo of that time might say, crazy.
0: I left his house probably two hours before he killed himself. I just refused to believe that this guy who was, you know, a couple hours prior playing video games with my girlfriend and I, you know, and eating pizza and, you know, that's the thing about suicide. You just, you'll never know. And you question it and run it back in your head a million times. It's not going to change anything. But it is something that, you know, when it's a friend and it happens, It sticks with you for a long time it's pretty hard to shake
1: no one seemed to have the tools or language to process ricky berry's death 1989 was a time when mental health care for most people consisted of having a belt of whiskey or just shaking it off and that swallow the pain approach would cost a dynamic young star his life and leave his family and friends confused and hurt to this day. From Three Uncanny Four and hyperobject Industries, I'm Adam McKay, this is Death at the Wing. Tonight's episode, Ricky Berry, the three and D wing of the future, the pressure of athletic perfection, and the decade when we stop talking about our feelings. Look at any list of the top 25 players in NBA history and you'll see Jerry West's name. Some people just simply call him the logo. And Jerry was general manager for the Lakers when Ricky Berry was drafted in 1988 by the Sacramento Kings. When Jerry talks about suicide, he chooses to focus on the courage that it took that person to keep going on with that amount of pain.
2: And you always wonder, you know, how long does it take someone to get the courage to do something like that. And people say, well, that's the easy way out. I disagree.
1: The pain sometimes can be too, uh, too daunting. Jerry West has a special sort of insight and empathy here. Decades after his playing career wrapped up, West was one of the first retired greats to ever open up about his mental health issues.
2: I wrote a book. Uh, about my life and it's called West by West, by charm to a minute of life. And, um, you know, it's something that I had never talked about, but I, I have been someone who has, uh, has battled depression, uh, a lot of dark places in my life that, uh, uh, are awkward for me to even talk about it. And You know, people say suffer in silence. Well, I did for a lot of years of my life, and I'm more freely uh, willing to talk about today than I have in the past.
1: Back when Jerry played basketball, athletes didn't flinch at elbows to the mouth, busted backs, torn up knees. Treatment was often a three-part plan. Shake off the pain, rub some proverbial dirt on it, and get back on the court. It's not hard to imagine what the reaction would be in a locker room if someone needed a break because of how they were feeling.
2: Well, they did make fun of of people who talked about it. And I was also so careful with myself because as I say, for the most part, I don't tell most people things that go on in my mind that are of concern to me and how I view myself. I was a social misfit. shyest, most embarrassed person in the world. It took me a long time to get out of it.
1: Even one of the greatest basketball players of all time was not immune to self-doubt and real moments of emotional pain and anguish. Every day, Jerry would get onto the court and try and hide how he was feeling. And I used to say to myself,
2: "I, I wonder if anyone would even care anything about me if I didn't have the skill to help win basketball games and people would come watch me play? That was a question I always asked myself. And that's not a great way to grow up, by the way. My father worked at that point in time for a coal mine, not inside the coal mine, he was an electrician for them. And I can remember they would strike every three years and
1: it was hard to even have anything to eat in our house. It's easy to lose track of when you're watching someone on TV. But the extreme need for excellence that drives a lot of these great athletes, the chip on the shoulder, well, that can often be the product of some real hardship.
2: I came a large family, uh, really um, not a place that anyone should grow up in, okay? Uh, No love in the family. When I was 13 years old, I had a brother killed in Korea, and he was the one in my family who seemed to... Uh, pay, Pay close attention to me. That one incident really compounded all the other problems. When my brother died, I completely changed. I was very aggressive, little tiny skinny kid, but I was aggressive because of what I saw in my house.
1: That pain that West endured in his childhood lasted through his whole basketball career. Depression, anxiety, anger... And West was far from alone. Basically, the entire country after World War II had just experienced a massive trauma and had zero tools to deal with their feelings. I remember my dad's father. He was a medic during the entire Italian campaign. I read one of his medal reports, and it described him with a wounded guy on his back running in front of a 38 Cal machine gun while Nazis were trying to kill him. But when I was a kid, he never, ever talked about it. He would just go in the basement and he would do landscape paintings. And then every night he would drink a six pack. That's the way it was for that generation. If you watch the first 25 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, what you're really seeing are 20,000, 30,000 therapist jobs being created for the children of the guys who survived that hell but could never talk about it.
3: And so there's always been a hush, hush about mental illness. Um, Now, when you put together uh, how people have been socialized, you don't talk about personal stuff.
1: Dr. William Parham is a psychologist and professor from Loyola Marymount University. He's devoted his entire career to working with athletes on their mental health. Men
3: especially have been incentivized to keep it tight, man up, push forward, push through it and to really just keep it private, like it's your secret. And then when you add a dimension of celebrity, oh, well, you really can't take uh, the shine off the star. You have to keep that image going.
1: For Black athletes in particular, this has always been a challenge. How many African-Americans are now in the Hall of Fame
3: who, when they were active players, could not stay in the same hotel as their white teammates? The psychology of having to put up with that is incredible. All of those things are important markers. And when you study African-American athletes, when you study women, when you study LGBT athlete communities, you'll see similar dynamics.
1: Athletes just didn't talk about these things, and neither did the rest of society. The stigma was overwhelming, and the treatment could often be brutal.
3: Back in those days, they didn't know anything about it. People were acting strangely uh, in very bizarre ways, and so they sent them to an asylum to quote, unquote, get better.
2: What do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? (laughs) You're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it.
1: For a lot of Americans, mental illness back then pretty much looked like what you'd see in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's a great movie, but it's also a terrifying movie. It involves lobotomies, electroshock therapy, the patients are held against their will. Didn't exactly make people want to go running to professionals to talk about their feelings.
4: Sit down, oh. gentlemen. Sit down, oh. gentlemen. Sit down. Sit down. Oh. I know little kid. You sit I down. I ain't no little kid. Where you gonna have cigarettes?
1: And the movie isn't too far off from the reality of the time. In the fifties, lobotomies were used to treat pretty much everything: anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, even if someone was just feeling moody. What we
3: discovered uh, when you pulled the curtain. Behind these asylums it was a very barbaric and humane practice uh, that went on, um, I, I mean, very, very barbaric and inhumane.
1: And if your problems weren't serious enough for a lobotomy, well, you must not have a real problem. Mental health back then was binary. You were either perfectly fine, or they called some guys in white suits with butterfly nets to catch you and take part of your brain out. There was no middle ground, no shades of gray for those who needed help but could otherwise function. In the early 1960s, the average length of stay in an institution for someone diagnosed for schizophrenia was 11 years. A decade later, in 1972, Democratic vice presidential candidate Thomas Eagleton was dropped from the ticket next to candidate George McGovern, due to a growing scandal that was dominating the news. If I remain on the ticket, all the attention and all the debate would be about Eagleton. Was it embezzlement of campaign funds, bribery, adultery? Not quite. You see, Eagleton had committed the heinous crime of not admitting he sought help for depression.
3: And it would take away from focusing on some problems that have to be attended to, Vietnam War, (laughs) the economy, credibility gap.
1: It had been revealed that Eagleton was hospitalized and had undergone some electroshock treatment during the 60s. Everyone freaked out. Legitimate news sources were asking the question, how can you trust someone who suffered from depression? The anguish and despair
2: the Greeks described as melancholy. Others are calling it the epidemic of the 70s.
1: Richard Nixon would go on to win that election in 72, trouncing McGovern in one of the widest margins of victory in presidential history. But that was the world of politics. In culture, the 60s had shifted things a bit. Hippies, or long hairs as people back then called them, were up to something truly radical, talking about their feelings. And by the time the mid-70s rolled around, some of that stuff was starting to go mainstream. For instance, Bob Newhart played a therapist in one of the most popular sitcoms of the time.
0: It's not unusual uh, for people who are starting uh, therapy uh, to have a little trouble uh, opening up.
1: Therapists were entering the cultural consciousness. Finally, you could admit out loud, at least in some places, that you were not feeling so great. I think I'm overcoming my agoraphobia. I I didn't even know you had a the fear of open places. Open places? Agoraphobia is a fear of open places. I thought it was a fear of agricultural products. (laughs) The silent generation may have still been pushing it all down, but their kids, for the first time, were starting to talk about how they felt. One honest-to-God sign of change, one of the most significant cultural forces of the 70s, the Pet Rock. The Pet Rock begins its life on the beaches of Baja, California. All is the man who created the Pet Rock, an idea, he says, whose time has come. Now, stay with me here. The Pet Rock was just like what it sounds. It was a rock that you carried around in a case like it was a pet. And for a generation like mine that was raised on G.I. Joes and erector sets, the Pet Rock was revolutionary. And it was stupid, yes, but that was kind of the point. So you carried this rock around and you took care of it. But what no one really fully understood was that by taking care of the rock, you were actually learning how to take care of yourself. It's like a fidget spinner made out of Zoloft. Even the movies of the time reflected a softer ethos as well. There was a basketball movie called One-on-One starring Robbie Benson in 1977. It's about a super talented point guard who goes to a giant school and can't handle the pressure and crashes. But then he meets a beautiful hippie chick, Annette O'Toole, who helps him get in touch with his emotions. The ending scene of the entire movie is Benson and O'Toole playing basketball with a bunch of kids of different races. And this Seals and Crofts song is playing called Love Conquers All. Love
0: Conquers All.
1: That's all you need to know about the '70s. That was our basketball move. Real basketball was starting to show its softer side too. The most valuable player of 1978 was a guy by the name of Bill Walton. Bill, well, I know you've you've tried acupuncture before. Will you continue to try that? Yes, I'll continue to, tr- to do a lot of
3: things, you know. But at this time, it's you know it's very important to uh,
1: get as much rest as possible. I'm. Without exaggeration, getting a little bit high just listening to that. Walton had giant, long flowing red hair, big beard, headband. Bill was the basketball equivalent of tie-dye, a one-man Woodstock 6'11 with a soul better served next to Jack Kerouac than Larry Bird. Here was a sports superstar who cared as much about his life off the court as on it. Long before he was a color commentator on ESPN, Walton would actually do post-concert analysis of Grateful Dead shows.
3: Wow, that was a bitchin' show, I tell you. Uh, After that four hours, uh, a lot of happy people here tonight, Bill.
1: He would often trip on mescaline with Carlos Castaneda and former NBA player George Mikan. Mikan was famous for tripping in the nude and howling like a wolf at the Great Pyramids with war paint on his face. I apologize again to the Mikan family. That never happened. That's a joke. If you look up a picture of Mike, and you'll see why I can't resist doing that. Anyway, the point is, after Nixon, people were finally starting to talk about some of the deep pain in this country. The suffering of soldiers from World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Women and people of color were expressing how it felt to be marginalized. And right on cue, a peanut farmer from Georgia was elected president and he was a man who is not afraid to talk about emotions. It is a crisis of confidence.
3: It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation.
1: To this day, a lot of people paint a picture of Jimmy Carter as a low-energy put-upon leader, the Charlie Brown walking away with his head hanging down president. And I guess that makes sense for Carter if you're most famous for a speech you gave that is called the malaise speech, even though, interesting fact, he never used that word. But if you think about it, what Carter was doing was pretty remarkable and actually high-level leadership. He was being honest. He was talking about real feelings that the people of America were experiencing. But there was just one problem. People hated it. They wanted to feel good like the people they saw on their TV. And Carter wasn't exactly making them feel good. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth and it is a warning. But Carter didn't give up trying. With one of his last acts in office, he tried to pass some legislation to address America's malaise. It was called the Mental Health Services Act. Jimmy Carter went all in on this initiative. He was trying to get more grants, more support, more investment for those people that were emotionally struggling. But in typical old school American fashion, Right when there was a chance that we were going to actually deal with real issues and, yes, even real feelings, instead, we clamped it down. We chose the belt of scotch, a waving American flag, and rather than Carl Jung, the next best thing to John Wayne. I've had a chance to meet and talk on the campaign trail with Americans in every corner of the United States. I find no national malaise. I find nothing wrong with the American people. We'll be right back.
0: Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke (laughs) girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. No. By all appearances, Ricky Berry was a man on top of the world. He was headed for his second year in the NBA under a three-year contract reported to be worth a million dollars. And yet, sometime Sunday night or Monday morning, police say Ricky Berry put a 9 millimeter pistol to his head and ended his life. To anyone outside looking in, it looked like Ricky had everything anyone would want. He was a star in the making, ready to take off into the NBA stratosphere. Ricky Berry had kept something to himself... And now, it was too late to help him. And at that moment of intense pain, there wasn't anybody in the NBA who seemed able to talk about the one thing that really mattered, their feelings. Kings coach Jerry Reynolds was too distraught even to read his prepared statement. I've got to say my uh, prayers.
0: Was a tragedy in the local community, but I don't remember a lot of national outcry. Things were so different then; we didn't have the twenty-four hour news cycle with cable television. Ricky Berry's death was met
1: mostly with silence. Actually, in some cases, not even that. The Kings didn't even hold a moment of silence for Berry in their next game after his death.
0: And I, I think it had something to do with uh, with the family or the family's request, but. Um, there was no ceremony for Ricky. There was, no, there was no funeral. The team didn't wear black armbands. There was no really uh, grieving process time or anything like that. It just, it was almost as if it, it didn't happen, and we were supposed to ignore it or something like that, which I always had a little bit of trouble with.
1: One minute, Ricky Berry was there, draining threes, driving to the hoop, larger than life. The next, he wasn't. The country as a whole just wasn't as comfortable talking about emotions. So much had changed since the 70s. If the Reagan revolution was an old guard policy response to a lot of the social justice movements of the 60s and 70s, it was also a huge reinterpretation of real American machismo. Gone were the conversations about malaise, a crisis of confidence and depression. We'd finally ditch the pet rocks for some pet fucking pythons.
0: There's an 11-foot-long python on the loose, the pet of 26-year-old William Fuller.
1: Seriously, snake ownership exploded in the 80s. I lived through it. It was definitely a weird time. The snake isn't a threat to children, but rabbits, the python's favorite dish, better watch out. Reagan and Republicans were very strategic about all of this, maybe not the snakes thing but a tough-guy-cowboy attitude that was easy to rally around in the final stages of the Cold War. And they were really effective at masking a lot of the real pain that was still out there. No surprise this had a policy element as well. When Reagan took office, his first big budget act completely undercut Carter's mental health initiatives. These bills that I'm about to sign... Mark an end to the excessive growth in government bureaucracy and government spending, government taxing. The government was getting out of the helping business. This was a different America. Welcome to the age of supreme selfishness. I mean, rugged individualism. I mean, you could just look at the movies of the time. The biggest sports movies weren't about feelings and coming of age. They were now about Rocky, single-handedly punching his fist through the Berlin Wall. Sylvester Stallone was also a huge figure as Rambo, oiled up, jacked up, coming out of a swamp with a machine gun, looking straight at the camera to utter that famous catchphrase, I can't remember what the catchphrase he says was, but for our purposes, we'll say, hey, we're gonna defund mental health care. By the way, if he had really said that, audiences would have cheered. That was the vibe in the 80s. Interesting fact, the first Rambo called First Blood is actually based on a novel from 1972, so it deals with real grief and pain from the Vietnam War. Actually ends with Rambo saying he only wants his country to love its soldiers as much as its soldiers love it. Second Rambo, straight-up movie, totally red, white, and blue flag-waving. whole movie rewrites the Vietnam War, so America basically wins it. Uh, would be a cool podcast. You could call it The Two Rambos. Okay, moving on. Soon enough, though, the Reagan presidency would have to confront questions of mental health in a dramatic and frightening fashion.
2: President Reagan, shots were fired at President Reagan this afternoon within the past 20, 25 minutes or so as he left a speaking engagement at a Washington hotel.
1: Months into Reagan's first term in office, a mentally ill man by the name of John Hinckley attempted to assassinate the president, wounding him, two Secret Service agents, and Press Secretary James Brady.
2: The sound of gunfire, according to some eyewitnesses there, there were three to
1: five shots. After treatment and rehab, Reagan was welcomed back to the Capitol as a conquering hero. His popularity numbers soared. The president had taken a bullet and was stronger than ever. Talk about manly. But after a high-profile trial, Hinckley's verdict would come in. Not guilty by reason of insanity. I remember this. The backlash was huge. This guy had almost killed the president, and he wasn't going to be convicted because of feelings and mental health? How is this guy not in the electric chair? People were going nuts. Basically, the giant question America was asking was, what happened to good old-fashioned American justice? Or, as the heroes of the day would say, hey, what happened to good old-fashioned American justice? I apologize for that. In response, Congress passed the Insanity Defense Reform Act, one of the most Orwellian-named bills in American history. And this act made it harder to use an insanity plea in federal trials. Basically, it was time to finally send all those quote, nut jobs where they belonged. And that was to one place prison. In fact, if you look at a list of the biggest psychiatric facilities of the era, the top three were all within prisons. The country had fallen back into that binary. You're either certifiably nuts or you're fine and you just need to stop whining about your problems. But if you were someone at home watching all of this, achieving everything society said would make you happy, but still somehow struggling, well, how would that make you feel? Ricky Barry, right. Yeah, that was a sad story, a confusing
4: story. I don't know that we still have all the answers um, on what happened to Ricky Barry. He was very, very talented player.
1: Basketball writer, Jackie McMullen.
4: And now we can look back and say, that he was struggling with some mental health issues. And and having written about it, I can tell you what they would be. Pressures from your family, you know, whether it's your wife, your parents, your girlfriend. Pressures from your team because they want you to succeed and they're really counting on you. Um, And the financial pressure of all your friends saying, you made it, don't forget me, man, I need some help. I can't pay my mortgage. Please help me, they're gonna turn off my electricity.
1: Jerry West felt those pressures Clearly, so did Ricky Berry. Every generation does. For so many years, the message had always been, grit your teeth and muddle through.
3: Well, they can do so as long
1: as they can, but there's a point at which they cannot. But in the decades since Ricky Berry's death, we've maybe, just maybe, gotten a little bit better at this. In part, because we've been struck by so much tragedy.
3: Those things take a toll. And we need to
1: sort of get to the core of what's really going on. That's coming up
0: after the break. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. I got Wheaties! I got Wheaties Bugs! Get my Wheaties Bugs!
1: 2010, the Lakers had just won their 16th NBA title. And there, in the middle of the jubilant celebration... Was Ron Artest, later Meta World Peace, now Meta Sanford Artest.
3: I just had some champagne and y'all just messing my whole thing up right now.
2: Hey, acknowledge me, please.
1: It was a surprisingly endearing display from one of the most aggressive and physical players in the league.
3: Look at my family, Coming up my family.
1: Artest is most infamously known for his role. In the malice at the palace. The problem is, if Wallace is ejected, I'm not After a shoving match between Artest and Ben Wallace from the Pistons, a fan threw a drink that landed right on Artest. And that's when all hell broke loose. Artest
2: is in the stands. Oh, this is awful. Fans are getting involved. Steven Jackson's in the fans.
1: Artest charged into the bleachers to fight with the fan. He thought he had thrown the drink. Other players followed. And then the fans started fighting back, and a full-on brawl ensued. It was a giant black eye for the NBA that, yet again, was trying to desperately cultivate a wholesome image for middle America. Now
4: they're jumping in there to try and get the other players out because the fans are coming by. You think about um, Ron Artest, he was clearly struggling with mental health issues. Everybody knew it, you know, when he was with the Pacers, it was apparent.
1: Here was a guy no one took seriously. He was eccentric, ridiculous, a punchline. Dennis Rodman for a new millennium. Talking heads at the time, especially white talking heads, would call him a thug or crazy. But the one thing our test wasn't was someone whose suffering we were supposed to take seriously.
4: And you know, he didn't get help till much, much later when, when he was with the Lakers. And I thought it was so poignant when they won the championship. In Boston, I was there in his post-game press conference. 20 points is Ron Artest. he's with Doris. You would have thought it was Kobe Bryant that we'd all be mesmerized by because, you know, he was the best player on the floor. But it was Ron Artest getting up there. My wife, my, my family, my kids, everybody. I definitely want to thank my doctor, Dr. Sandy, my, um, my psychiatrist. And he got up there and thanked his psychiatrist.
2: She really helped me relax a lot. Thank you so much. It's so difficult to play all this ball. Po- there's so much commotion going on in the playoffs. Can she helped me relax? I thank you so much.
1: And I mean, that was a huge moment. Ron Artest, the pride of Queensbridge, the baddest man in the league. And he thanked his therapist. I remember seeing it live and it took my breath away.
4: And not only that, he apologized to Larry Bird and the Pacers. For not taking this move this move in his life sooner, so that he could have been the best player and person he could have been for them all those years ago.
1: Think about what Ron Artest's career would have looked like if he came through in a different decade, or even if he wasn't a basketball player. How do we get from the era of drinking away the pain of lobotomies and juiced up alpha males to now taking mental health seriously? Well, in the NBA, the first step was to make it acceptable. And that started with players bravely, finally opening up about their struggles in public. If you had a broken leg, you'd get it treated. If you have
4: a mental health issue, you should get it treated. What's the, there should be no difference. You just try to destigmatize the idea that it's something you should be embarrassed of or afraid of or something you should
1: ignore. And unlike the past, when opening up about mental health struggles could risk your career or your next contract, the NBA was finally standing behind you while you did it. For the NBA, it made sense on every level these players could bring in hundreds of millions of dollars for the league. Why turn your back on them just because they're having feelings that all of us have? And for the fan base, it helped too. The fan base has these same feelings, and seeing big superstars speak about depression and anxiety, there's strength in that.
4: Now every team has mental health counseling. Every player in the NBA has access to mental health counseling that does not have to be
1: affiliated with the team. 6'10 all-star power forward Kevin Love was one of the first to talk publicly.
3: So well, what I've learned is Uh, No one's immune to depression, nobody's immune to anxiety. And I would bet you more often than not that, you know, somebody, whether it's yourself or somebody within arm's reach,
1: is is dealing with it close to you. And now even other people in the league feel comfortable with discussing their mental health issues.
4: One of the guys that talked to me for my story was Marcus Morris. They're Morris twins, Marcus and Markeith Morris. They're from Philly, the toughest part of Philly. And uh, they're the two of the toughest guys in the league. And when, he, when they came forward and said, yeah, we have had mental health issues, we're seeing a mental health counselor. I think a lot of players in the NBA were like, whoa.
1: A few brave players had cracked the door with their honesty and vulnerability. Now the floodgates were open in the NBA and in the world at large. I mean, Michael Phelps was
4: one of the most decorated Olympians of all time has terrible mental health issues that he's now sharing with the world, you know? Think of all the differences he's going to make for all these young kids that see that and can draw
1: some strength from it, you know? While Jordan once sold McDonald's, LeBron now pitches a meditation app.
2: The mind is like a muscle. The more you train it, the stronger it becomes. And while the greats mastered the body, the greatest mastered the mind. Ah. <sighs> calmer already. These players today are so much more sophisticated. Even though they're young, they watch every word that a LeBron James will say, every word that uh, someone that they admire will say. Uh, he's going to dress like him. He's going to wear the same shoes. <laughs> he's going to wear uh, they are copycats. And just face it, you look back at your life, and there's someone that you probably admired,
1: and you tried to copy that person. There was no one for me. So many of the stories we've covered in this series are about players who struggled with drugs, alcohol, violence. Dr. William Parham thinks of those as smoke alarms.
3: If your smoke detector in your home went off, I doubt that you would go find a step stool, step on it, and take the smoke detector down from the ceiling. You see, the fact that it went off suggests that it's working, not that it's not working and not only is it working, it's telling you, Psh, you better come and do something and take a look at it. Because if you don't, there could be some adverse consequences.
1: Terry Furlow's partying, Eddie Johnson's erratic behavior, Roy Tarpley's drug use, the anger that Jerry West carried with him on the court, and of course, Ricky Berry never being able to ask for or get help. All of these were signals. You can take
3: this to the bank. Something can be problematic, but I can guarantee you it is never the problem. It's a symptom that a larger problem exists. And so the smoke detector didn't just pop out of nowhere. It actually is a culmination of stuff that's been stored up for a long, long time.
1: Players finally feel like they can talk about their feelings and get the help they need. And the results, well, they're kind of beautiful. You know, I. I underestimated mental health, honestly, right? Shout out to the
3: people that was in my corner, the people that gave me the words. Being vulnerable is very important. I think that's another word that, um, you know, has a negative connotation to it, uh, especially, you know, playing professional sports or playing sports in general. So I think it's it's
1: important that we have these conversations. The NBA actually has learned one of the great lessons when it comes to mental health and feelings. In the words of the legendary spiritual guru, Mr. Rogers, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. So many people just, the response that I got from it, just hearing
3: that me stepping out, doing something like that gives people the courage to, you know, accept things. And you know, that something like that makes me feel good.
1: Death at the Wing is a Hyperobject and Three Uncanny Four production. I'm your host and executive producer, Adam McKay. Jody Avergan is our executive producer and story editor. Ragu Manavalan is our senior producer. Brian Steele is our producer. We got booking help from Catherine Shoemaker. Our assistant producer is Shane McKeon. Archival research from Jason Helig. Fact-checking from Will Tavlin. We got legal help from Allison Sherry. Nuna Sharafeddine is our production manager. Very special thanks to Stacy Robert Steele. This show is mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Music composition by Beacon Street. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson at Hyperobject and Laura Mayer at Three Uncanny Four. If you like this series, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show. And make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us and it helps others discover the show. If you wanna get in touch with any questions or comments about this show, send us an email. We'll be doing a bonus episode at the end of this series talking about more stories and answering your questions. Our email address is D-A-T-W at HyperObjectIndustries.com. That's D-A-T-W for Death at the Wing at HyperObjectIndustries, all one word, dot com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ghost Panther or you can reach us by sending a letter through the estate of George Miken. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death at the Wing.